0: Welcome to the Global Careers Podcast, sponsored by GW Cyber, the source for inspiring stories from seasoned professionals who have embraced a global role and reaped the benefits. We offer practical advice and insider tips across a broad swath of industries and fields around the world. You know, whether or not you've considered moving abroad or taking on an international role, globalization will impact your career. So join us for a lively discussion as we explore what an international career really means. My name is Stacey Nevadomsky-Burdan, and I'll be your host. In season five, we focus on women in global careers, the challenges and opportunities, and how things have evolved over the last few years. Join us as we hear from eight global women as they share their inspiring stories working around the world in such fields as tech, diplomacy, investing, marketing, and more. Today I am delighted to have the opportunity to speak with Jenny Bucos, a multi-award winning director and producer, and the founder of Explorer Media. Having explored at least 50 countries in depth, Jenny is a global citizen who brings the world up close and personal into classrooms and living rooms for teachers, families, and students to explore together. She's been creating entertaining and educational content for educators to enhance and expand their curriculum over the past two decades after leaving her job in the corporate world of finance oh so many years ago. Welcome Jenny, it is great to have you with us today.
1: Thanks, delighted to be with you.
0: Great, so let's dive in. One of the objectives of this podcast is to provide a sense of the careers that are out there. More than just titles, tell us what you do.
1: <laughs> That's an interesting question, what don't I do? Um, well, my title is CEO and Founder of Explore. Um, but in reality, what that sort of means is I do everything. <laughs> um, by, by education, um, I'm a storyteller. I, I, um, I studied theater. And I thought I was going to be an actress, and then I realized I didn't have the talent to be an actress. (laughs) Um, And then I thought, "Hmm, if I want to stay in entertainment and storytelling, maybe I can be a producer. And then I realized I didn't have the money to be a Broadway producer. Um, And then I thought, you know, my mom's a teacher and that's storytelling, maybe I can do something there. Um, So after you mentioned, I uh, was at an investment bank, I left the investment bank, and I decided I was going to become a children's entertainment producer, using the web as my medium. And this was in 2003 before YouTube even existed. Um, so the space was wide open at the time. Um, and I basically taught myself to become a director, producer, editor, writer, um, and ran my own production company. So CEO and founder, obviously, because it's my company, but really what I do is use digital media to help tell a uh, children's stories. And when I say children, I'm really talking teens, tweens, and their families. Um, Stories about the world, stories about um, unseen people, stories about careers you may not know exist, stories about people dealing with mental health, basically anything a child could ever want to learn or need to learn all in one place. And it looks and feels exactly like a Netflix, Amazon, Hulu.
0: Wonderful. Cool. Well, that's great. Well, so I know a lot of what you do is... um, work all over the world, bringing the world into the lives of these young people, right? So you've been to 70 right. plus countries, you work with local teams, producing multimedia content, local, right. you deal with local issues, cultures, histories. What steps do you take to prepare?
1: Uh, yeah, it initially started filming everything outside of the U.S. And then I realized, you know, we can film things within diverse communities in the U.S., um, Steps to prepare. I mean, first thing we do is we sort of go to teachers, students, and families say, if you, if we waved a magic wand, what would you like to w- learn about the world? And we were very specific when we, when I started. So we're going to Thailand. What do you want to know about Thailand? And that drove a lot of the decisions we made from an editorial perspective. So, are we telling, you know, the history of Buddha or are we telling how Buddhist um, architecture has influenced modern architecture? And you'd be surprised, like, what kids come back with and the questions they have. Um, so, picking the content first, but then really looking to who the local experts are to be our storytellers. Um, so, I think one of One of the the things that I've really excelled and really tried to do over the last two decades doing this is even though I cast and put a presenter in front of the camera to be the guide for that episode, really letting the people we feature locally be the the, the, the heroes of their own stories, the tellers of their own stories, the experts of their own uh, field, um, and I think that's really important. That's the biggest thing for what we do is looking for the storytellers, looking for the experts, and then just letting them share their expertise, their experience, um, and their stories. So it's really understanding that local knowledge. On the production side, on the admin, the administrative side, um, it's understanding what it takes to operate and work in a different country, and that's different for Jordan, as it is for South Africa, as it is for Israel. Um, It's different in Singapore. So really sort of diving in and having a mini culture crash course for every uh, community, region and country we're going to work in. Um, And I can't underestimate the importance of that. Um, You can't underestimate the importance of that. It opens so many doors, even if you just speak a couple um, words in the local language, or understand how to approach um, a business situation.
0: Mm-hmm. So give me some of the tips, like what is part of your crash course?
1: Uh, part of my crash course? Um, well, in the Middle East, obviously, being a woman, it's how you dress. Uh, <laughs> so uh, just making sure you're respectful and you try to follow um, what you would see other uh, female business leaders wearing in the area, that I think is is critically important and um, in most countries, please, hello, thank you. Um, I, I usually like to say, how how is your day going? Understanding how much does it cost, you know, just the local language of that. Um, when I was working in Jordan, we were working with Syrian refugees, and I quickly learned that women don't shake hands with men. So it's a simple gesture of putting your hand over your heart when you meet someone. Um, because obviously, when you're trying to work with someone, you don't want to make them uncomfortable. So it's little things like that. Um, yeah, so those are, those are like the key ones, um, specifically in South Africa. And I've spent a lot of time working in South Africa, understanding the history and legacy of apartheid and what it means to be a white person walking into a community that has experienced so much racial injustice and racial tension. Um, what that means to walk into a room, um, of all black South Africans, and to present your business and your story, you know, how is that going to be perceived? Um, so it is, it's is—it's a lot of preparation before we even get on the ground to create our content. Yeah,
0: that's wonderful, great tip. So in saying that, I mean, I think to myself, cause some people like, oh, well you can just read a book or maybe you can just uh, dive onto the internet and just check out some sources. I imagine you do, you'd really do a deep dive. You look at all different types of sources, lots of time spent doing this. Real true preparation, not just uh, skimming a couple of websites, right?
1: Yeah, I very rarely skim websites. Um, You know, we're all living in the, in sort of, well, people are saying post COVID, but, you know, sort of like everybody's okay with Zoom now. Um, But I've always used Zoom, Skype, FaceTime to connect with people within that country to prepare. And I think there's no better way than trying to find people who have that lived experience um, that you can sort of go to as an advisor before you hit the ground. And that really like sets me up to be successful in these places. When I make those contacts, even if we don't work with them there. um, When I'm not, I'm, I'm in Amsterdam today, but when I'm not in Amsterdam, I'm based in New York and we have access to people from all over the world. So why not take advantage of that and try to you know, try to understand before you get on a plane, before you get that stamp in your passport, what it's going to be like to set foot in that country and try to do a job, which is very different than living.
0: Mm-hmm. That's great advice. I love that. Speaking to somebody there. Terrific, terrific advice. That's great.
1: I mean, Twitter lets you connect with anyone. It <laughs> Instagram does. lets you connect with anyone. Um, and I, I usually go to, you know, artists, chefs, musicians, um, because they're all storytellers themselves. Um, and they tend to be really tapped in, tuned into what's going on politically, culturally, and socially in their countries. Mm-hmm. So not just the historical sense, but what what is the snapshot this moment in time before you, before you hit the ground?
0: That's a great tip. Excellent advice. Thanks for that. Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to go back to something you said earlier that you just kind of like started out in finance, kind of like a blip in the beginning of your career. But how did you switch? Because I know a lot of our listeners may be in business school or getting the MBA, They may think of that kind of a traditional uh, business path, but they may want to do something like you've done uh, as an entrepreneur, uh, as an entrepreneur. So tell us about that. How'd you switch?
1: So I was, I was forced into it. (laughs) Um, So I I mentioned, um, I studied theater. And then when I moved to New York, there were a lot of stops and starts, like you're not going to make it in this industry. And then talking to friends who were in the industry, well, or at least trying to break into the entertainment industry. Um, said, well, you have to get, you have to get a day job. And they said, you know, there are sort of two pathways you can follow if you want to be an actor. Um, and that's waiting tables or working as a temp at an investment bank. And this was in the late nineties. So like investment banks were loaded with temp employees. So I sort of fell into, into the job I had. Um, I was placed at a, a major global investment bank and within two days, they, they had given me a job offer. Um, and I took it because I didn't know what I was going to do and like the reality of just having to pay off student loans and be, you know, in your early 20s. And I stuck with that job at the at the bank for uh, about three years. I worked in the HR department, creating the MBA recruiting videos, you know, like, why do you like working at this place? And um, so that was my job. That's how I learned how to become a producer by managing this film company that came in for this bank um, to make these recruiting videos. Um, I worked, uh, the bank sent me to Hong Kong and Tokyo, and that was the first time I had left the country. Um, And when I returned September 11th hit, um, and the entire HR division was laid off, uh, because they weren't recruiting anymore. So I was sort of forced um, to change careers. But that was okay because that was. I don't feel that that was my intended path. Anyhow, um, it was it was literally the job that helped me pay my student loans and and make a living. But what I did get out of the bank is um, I know how to run a business. I know how to do spreadsheets. I know I understand what you know a good HR contract looks like. I understand what employee benefits look like. I understand basic finance. Um, I went through Series Seven and Series sixty three courses uh, courses to be a licensed broker dealer. Um, And then in working in the HR division with this film company, I learned how to produce. Um, So when I got my severance package, there was no question for me that that's what I was going to use my money to do was um, create entertainment for kids. It, It had always been brewing in my mind, but I didn't know how to make it happen. So sometimes those tragic or upsetting events tend to work out in your favor.
0: Absolutely, especially if your eyes are open and you're paying attention and you've got Thanks. these. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I know how passionate you are about in, in, you know increasing student access uh, to the world, engaging them in, in becoming maybe more global citizens, thinking about the world differently. Um, how do you see that this has changed? I mean, you mentioned 9-11. That was, that was a while ago, yeah. but in the last five years, um, touching on if you want COVID um, or not, but yeah. how has student engagement and access change since the pandemic and others in the last five years?
1: So let's go back to 9-11 and why I started it, because literally anything foreign was something to be feared. That's what the media was portraying. Um, And there was a lot of othering going on. So um, that was the initial, I didn't want children to grow up in a world where something foreign was meant to be feared. I just didn't like that. Um, I felt that I really helped lay a lot of groundwork for a lot of kindergarten through 12th grade public schools to understand that global citizenship and global competence are two very different things. Global competence, you know, you can sort of say, I've done my global studies by understanding where Ukraine is on a map. That isn't really global competence. It's global competence is what you do with the world knowledge you have, and you don't have to travel to be globally competent. So it was a lot of education there um, for ten years. Um, then things were looking really good, and I felt okay. We're on the right path. This is my life's work. I'm gonna I'm gonna change a generation. And then some things happened around 2016, <laughs> 2017, 2018. Without getting political, where we sort of go went back into this finger pointing. Anyone outside of America's borders is to be feared. Um, they're taking our jobs away from us. Um, so, you know, I think education also shifts with the political environment, um, you know, and I don't want to I don't I don't think it's it's not a question of where I sit, but I try to be very careful with the schools and children and families we work with pull polit- from a political standpoint. Um, but I feel like we've regressed um, and not just here in the U.S., but everywhere xenophobia is an as a, is at an all time high um, racial injustice, I think, is still at an all time high. Um, And then, uh, so that's where I think we are. I think we're moving backwards, (laughs) Mm -hmm. which is extremely upsetting. Um, From a COVID perspective, I don't think that that has put us any further back. I actually think that's put us further ahead in terms of education by making people realize the inequities in digital education. I think we've now solved sort of the connectivity and device issues that are in the United States. And now it's just up to us to make sure that kids, because they're constantly on their devices, have access to these global perspectives and stories and stories that are solution driven and not doom and gloom and not fear mongering. Um, So I'd like to say we're in a better position, but I don't think we are. Mm,
0: Yeah, I agree with you. I I agree that it's uh, COVID actually helped to move us forward in in those spaces, as well as just people understanding the global supply chain, that you just cannot. We are a global society. We are a globally interconnected world, and you cannot um, think otherwise, or you can't think otherwise, and you can't go back to actually thinking, oh, let's just do it all here, Um, the whole nativism, even with nearshoring, cropping up, and all those kinds of things. Um, We just can't go backwards because we are interconnected for a reason, um, at least business wise, if not from all of a humanity standpoint. Um,
1: That's such a great point. I, you know, the global supply chain was like the thing that teachers asked most about, like, can you create a video so I can explain how everything is interconnected and, you know, why we don't have chips for our cars to patch, (laughs) um, to patch a software issue. And, and, you know, why is that, um, I just think it's fascinating. And strange things disappeared from shelves. Like in the Netherlands, we had a nail polish remover, like you couldn't buy it anywhere because it came from China. Um, And you wouldn't think of things like that, like, oh, well, this whole product is just gone now. Mm -hmm. Um, I wasn't in the US during COVID um, and we weren't hit as bad in the Netherlands just because of the EU cooperation, but there was still, you know, things would just disappear. Mm Um, very, very interesting. And, and I think it's impossible to ignore our connectivity now.
0: Mm-hmm. That's good. Yeah. So those are some, some of the challenges um, kind of along the way. Um, what other types of challenges
1: that you faced in your
0: career so far?
1: Um, faced in my career? <laughs> being a woman. Um, I'm in an industry, at least when I started. So as director, producer behind the camera. Um, only 10% of the people behind the camera are directors, producers. And when you start to drill that down to like factual travel programming, so things that you would see like on the travel channel, discovery channel, history channel, female director, producers, I can't name another one. Um, So that's been a huge challenge <laughs> and showing up in places and people not realizing that I'm the the decision maker, and I'm the boss, and I'm the person who writes the check. Um, I'm in my mid to late 40s. And as recent as three months ago, I've been called a girl on set before um, as someone in their mid 40s with 20 years experience in their field. And a man would never experience that. Mm -hmm. Um, And it doesn't matter if it's in the US or abroad. Some places abroad, it's even worse. Mm -hmm. So that's that's a huge challenge for me. and then I think on a personal level, um it's it's incredibly difficult working the way I do because I do travel about 150 days out of the year. Maintaining relationships with your family, um maintaining relationships with friends um, becomes a challenge. Um so you have to have very supportive people in your life and very understanding people in your life.
0: Mhm. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, you've said so much. So I want to unpack at least being, being a woman, let me ask you, what yeah. do you do about it? What do you do about it? You've given some examples, great challenges. Yes. And they, I'm sure there are so many more rampant here and around the world. What do you do about it? What kind of advice do you have?
1: So until about three years, I kind of just let it go. Um, I let those comments just go. Um, Now, because I work with a lot of young women, and I've also gotten to the point in my career where if somebody doubts me, right now I'm going through um, a fundraising round. If somebody doubts me because of, well, in the startup world, because of my age and because I'm a woman, I immediately shut those meetings down now um, because it's a waste of my time and I'm not going to convince these people otherwise. If somebody calls me a girl on set, I immediately correct them. By saying, no, I'm a woman (laughs) on set, you wouldn't say that to a man, and I have 20 years experience. Um, And I've earned this, I've earned this respect. I think that's important for the young women on my team um, to see that. Um, It's not everyone can do that. I've just reached, I feel like I've reached a place in my, uh, a place in my life and and a point in my career where I do have the power to to just shut that down. When I was working in a Middle Eastern country, and I'm not going to say which one, um, one of the people we were working with needed to be, uh, one of our experts needed to be paid and he wouldn't accept money from me because I was a woman. And he kept talking to the men on my team saying, well, I, I need to get paid, but I can't take money from her because she's a woman. And it it it. I mean, it came down to you're either not getting paid or you're taking money from me. At the end of the day, he finally took the money from me. But you know, I'm trying to be culturally sensitive and respectful of his boundaries, but also, you know, it, it has to go both ways. I think to yeah. Uh, yeah say you know this is this is the boss. She has to pay you
0: <laughs> right as long as it's not illegal to be paid. By no, <laughs> it's not
1: illegal. He just he culturally he didn't like it. Yes. Um. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. But yeah, I just I feel like if you're at a at a point where one you know it isn't going to hurt your career or advance your career, what's the point what's the problem standing up for yourself?
0: Yeah, and you're you're absolutely right Donna. and I hope that our listeners, uh, men and women, actually um hear what you're saying and actually do it earlier. Stand up for yourself earlier. You know, you I mean, you as you said, you have the gravitas now, you can, you know, put up with it you know, fabulous. But there's no reason people should have to wait. There's no reason any, anyone should actually have to wait. Although we know that there are reasons and it happens all the time. So um, I hope other people feel empowered by that and to, to stand up because it's actually mm-hmm. self worth and value and it really matters. And um, you know, I really appreciate your sharing that story.
1: Thanks. Well, it's even gotten to the point where I'm doing pitch meetings right now for venture capital. And before I get into my pitch, um, which are incredibly stressful and, and you know, very, you just have to be so on. They always say, would you like to hear a little bit about our fund? And do you have any questions before we start the pitch? And my my question is always how many female founders and how many minority founders do you have um, in your portfolio? And if they say no to me, that's the end of the meeting. hmm because I'm not going to convince them otherwise.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely right. Absolutely right. Well, good for you.
1: And again, this is everywhere in the world. This is not just US. Um, Yeah, it's very interesting to see this.
0: Yeah. Well, in this vein, um, um, woman or not, but as a a global entrepreneur, you know, what kind of advice do you have for our listeners in that space?
1: What advice? Um, Well, if you're going to It depends. So I I sort of think there are kind of two pathways to having a global career. Um, You can have a global career like mine, where you're not in one set place, you work all over the world. So you're sort of like a global nomad. Um, And then you can have a career where you can say, I'm going to go work three years in Singapore. But I think in both cases, having the support network, both in your home country and then the, the countries you're working in, is so unbelievably critical, um, especially if like you're married and you wanna have a kid, like that support network before you make that decision to have that global career needs to be in place. Um, So for me, like I've had multiple um, emergency surgeries and procedures in foreign countries. And if I didn't have the support network there, I wouldn't even know how to navigate the medical system. Um, I've been in places where I don't speak the language and I'll get to a hospital and there won't be a single person there who speaks English. Um, so don't underestimate the value of having a support network in place. Mm. That would be number one. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I'd say that's the biggest thing. Um, and then going back to the, the local knowledge, um, it's a lot easier than you think to live and work abroad, but there are just some basic things that you need to have in place.
0: And I know you're coming to us today from Amsterdam, but you split your time uh, between Amsterdam yes, and New York City, Brooklyn in particular. Um, what's
1: that mm-hmm. like? Um, I love it. Um, that, it's it's the best of both worlds. When I'm in New York, I want to be in Amsterdam. When I'm in Amsterdam, I want to be in New York. And that's I guess that's great. Um, I have a very understanding partner. So that goes back to your support network. I moved to Amsterdam for love. Um, and it just happens to be that I can work here. Everybody speaks English. It's just very easy to to be in Amsterdam. Um, again, it's, it's. It, I wouldn't have it any other way, but I do see my, my friends and family saying, oh, I haven't seen you for, you know, a year. <laughs> and this is before COVID. Um, so just, you know, it's, it's, how open can you be with people in your life to say, "Look, it's it's not a it's not a personal matter that I'm not seeing you. It's just it's my six months in Amsterdam now. Um but i I have the luxury because i I do have two places that I can fly back and forth whenever I want. Mm-hmm. So it's not like I'm here for three months and then I'm home. well, wherever home is. Um, I can just i I can be fluid in my decisions.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, that's great. That's uh, yes. Uh, clearly a nomadic lifestyle, which is um, always sounds a lot more to some people, it sounds a lot more glamorous than it is. But there are the basics that are that you've described, you kind of miss people. Sometimes you want to be in a different place. And maybe it's easier or more difficult, depending on where you are. But it's exciting. Yeah. Nonetheless, I'm sure. I'm sure, right? Uh, just Yeah. Kind of just- and
1: And I wouldn't say I have a nomadic work style just because I'm doing television, but my life is like my home in Amsterdam is very much my home in Amsterdam and my home in New York is very much my home in New York. Um, and then I just have, (laughs) when I buy clothes, I always buy two sets of everything. So I just have both outfits. (laughs) Um, and then I just always have like my little overnight bag ready to go in case, you know, somebody says, Hey, can you be back in Amsterdam tomorrow? Um, just, um it's just a different lifestyle and one that i couldn't imagine doing with children so i'm sure people can i just i personally couldn't imagine it
0: mm-hmm. and i think those are those are some of the choices that we make i mean you talk yeah. about support relationships you talk about having a supportive uh, partner it is very important to talk about it if you want a global career, any type of global career, because we don't always get to define what that means at the beginning before we go on our first adventure. You really have exactly. to have somebody who thinks the same way, who's going to support you all the way. It's not just, sure, I'll follow you to London, but if you're going to Singapore, no way, right? They have to be in kind of the the whole mindset has to be there as well.
1: Yeah, because yes. it was really lonely when I first moved to Amsterdam. It's um, The Dutch are very friendly people, but you you make your, your group of friends either through work or school. So for expats moving in, it it's a very, very different uh, and difficult community to sort of infiltrate. So the majority of my friends here are all expats, which frustrates me a little because I'd like to speak a little Dutch and get to know some Dutch people. But that's just not how it works here. So the first two years were incredibly difficult mm. until I sort of figured out what was wrong.
0: And what was wrong and how did you fix it?
1: When I say wrong, I'm in in quotes. It's it's that the Dutch are very committed to the group of friends that they already have. This is not like at five o'clock when everyone in the office says, "Hey, let's go get a drink." You have your dedicated group of friends, and they may have come from school. So, you know, in New York, you can sort of just walk up to anyone and say, "Oh, hey," or talk to the person <laughs> and make at the friends. Bar. Like I've yeah. made friends with like my grocery <laughs> delivery guy and the person at the coffee shop. It's it's just a very very different culture, mm. and. As I started talking to more and more expats here, they've all had the same experience. How hard it is to make friends with Dutch people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Well, I've talked with lots of people, as, as you know, over the last couple of decades myself, and it's actually true in many countries. There's mm, Dutch, it's Swiss, it's um, all the Scandinavian countries, it's similar, and you have to really work at breaking into it, and it's, and it's different by country and culture. Um, but there's a lot of that. There's a lot of that many places that that, it's even in small town america i mean there's there is in yeah. many places but you can always find global souls i find somewhere they're not that they, they are diamonds in the rough they are few and far between but sometimes we can find them when we go to different places
1: yeah absolutely yeah there's a great um offline networking event here uh for a club that i belong to and that's literally what it is like you tell us what you're interested in like professionally and hobby wise and they sort of do like speed dating for you to meet new people. Um, just friends. Um, very, very interesting that it's not like a dating thing, but it's like these are six people who share your interests. Um, so I've been using that a little bit lately.
0: I love it. That's so cool. Yeah, it does. Not Isn't be that cool? I know. So I know. They should do this friends. in every city. <laughs> That's great. Neat. Yeah. Well, speaking yeah. of many cities and countries, do you have a favorite place? that you've worked? A favorite place um, know, that I've worked.
1: Um, or
0: been, a favorite place. I, yeah, I'm going to say
1: there are two places. I'm going to say London and South Africa. Um, London goes back to my theater days. So having access to all of the arts at very little cost is is my favorite. And I love the British accent. I married a British man who happens to live in the Netherlands. Um, so <laughs> London, I adore. I'm there next week. Um, and then South Africa, just because it was so early in my career, And everyone I worked with, this is when Nelson Mandela was alive, Desmond Tutu was still alive, Winnie Mandela, um, very famous musicians. They sort of all said yes to working with me and understanding what had happened in that country under apartheid and, and letting a young white woman come in and help tell their history to the rest of the world through these world leaders I Means South Africa will always have a special place in my heart. I've been back about a dozen times. I'm friends with the people who are still living from that series and, th- and now their children and their grandchildren. Um, but I think South Africa is an incredibly unique place um, full of possibility and potential, but also heartbreak everywhere you go.
0: Mm. That's great. How wonderful. Cool. So yeah. before we wrap up, this has been a wonderful conversation, Jenny. I really appreciate you taking the time because I know how busy you sure. are as well. Um, What are you working on now? Tell us what's going on
1: now. What am I working on now? Um, I'm working on two really cool series. Um, I'm working on one called Boom Kitchen, which is a cooking class for families, but then it also has a follow the ingredient. I like to do a lot about solution driven. So let's imagine we're making strawberry jams and scones. Our field trip is to a strawberry farmer in California to understand how climate change is affecting their crops. So that's, you know, what can we do from a a young activist solution, global citizen uh, perspective to make sure we can still have strawberry jam and scones. I just, I love this for kids. Um, And then we're working on something called generation space. And it's the careers that we need to go to the moon or live on Mars or live on the space station. So things like Heating, waste management, food production. And then what's that thread to that job back on Earth? And I love the idea that somebody's going to a highly skilled technical training program to become your plumber. That's the same skill set that we need on the space station and on Mars. Um, I just I, I love this idea that that's it's, it's otherworldly, but we're still so connected as human beings, and that takes global citizenship to a completely different level.
0: <laughs> oh, totally, and it, and it and it puts our perspective, uh, the skills and the jobs that we look at, in a totally different light. You know, you flip it ninety uh, yeah. or one hundred and twenty degrees, yeah. and you look at it very differently.
1: Yeah, so those are the two that I'm working on filming right now and they're just a blast and it's different cultures and people and and backgrounds and stories and histories and um, you know there's no better way to get into global understanding than f- like food and music food. so mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. the oh, fact I- that we get to do a uh, an international cooking class is just going to be great.
0: I love it. I can't wait to can't wait to see that one cuz yeah. I'm a foodie. <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. I love it. And thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. It's been a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate it, Jenny. Thank you. You have been listening to the GW Cyber Global Careers Podcast. Join us again next time. And in the meantime, go global.